Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We began a series last week through the book of Philippians. We began not in Philippians itself, but going to Acts chapter 16. We looked last week at the miraculous way in which the church at Philippi was started. We get more information about this church start than we do any other way that a church is started in all of the New Testament. We also get more information about the relationship between this church and the Apostle Paul than we do of any other church. This is really a unique letter. It seems that as the Word of God was being put together and God was inspiring the writers to put down exactly what needs to be written, he wanted to make sure we had a lot of information about this letter. So last week from Acts 16, we saw that the reason this church started is because of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That the Apostle Paul tried to go one direction and the Holy Spirit forbid him to go. The Apostle Paul tried to go another direction, the Holy Spirit forbid him to go. He then received a vision. Someone from Macedonia was calling him to come over. And so Paul uh, went with Timothy and Silas to Macedonia. They took the Roman road to the leading city of Macedonia and ended up in Philippi. They then ended up in a little Bible study outside of Philippi, a women's Bible study, in which Paul sat down and presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was there that God opened the heart of a lady named Lydia to respond to the gospel, and the first believer in Philippi was made by the work of the Holy Spirit. Next, Paul delivered a slave girl from a demonic spirit. He was then publicly beaten and shamed, thrown into prison where he led the jailer to Christ, and his whole family was baptized. So as Paul leaves Philippi at the end of Acts 16, he is badly beaten and humiliated, but full of joy because a church had been started. The last verse of Acts 16 tells us, that there in Philippi at Lydia's home was a group of people who could only be brought together because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was nothing socially that was bringing together, nothing economically. They were simply brought together by the fact that they had all received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul left behind a church that Christ built. And we saw last week from that story the way that Christ builds his church is through the guidance of his spirit the proclamation of his word, and the surrender of his people. Now what we hold in our hand this morning in this book that we call Philippians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul 10 years after Acts 16. So we looked at Acts 16 last week. Paul left Philippi. What we have here, and we'll begin to look at this morning, is 10 years later. Now, a lot has happened in those 10 years. We get some clues to that by just the first three verses. Look at them with me. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot that's happened in these 10 years, and we're going to spend most of our time talking about that this morning. But there are a few things that are clear from the first couple of verses. I want you to note a few important words. First of all, notice that Paul and Timothy are still together. Ten years later, still ministering together, still working together, still planting churches. Remember, it was in the beginning of Acts 16 that Paul met Timothy 
and invited him. And here he is 10 years later, these two still together doing the work of the ministry. But look at these key words. First of all, look at the word servants. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We talked about this again last week. That Paul and Timothy viewed themselves as one primary way, and that is slaves of Jesus Christ. That word is really a word, bondservants. If it wasn't for all the cultural baggage, which is understandable, it would be translated slaves of Christ Jesus. Many translations do translate it that way, but it's understandable that that word, particularly in our context, comes with a lot of baggage. But yet, the reality is, Paul and Timothy saw themselves in one way. We exist under the lordship of Jesus Christ. To become a follower of Christ is not simply to trust him, but to follow him, amen? That's the way Jesus presented the gospel, come and follow me. And as an act of faith, a person chooses to enter into a life of following Jesus. If you said a prayer, but never started following Jesus, you're not a believer. I hear people say all the time, well, you know, uh, my son, he, he, he knows Jesus, he's just never followed Jesus. Well, it doesn't work that way. A believer in Jesus Christ is someone who has made the choice to enter into a life of walking by faith and following Jesus, a life submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Paul and Timothy say, we have submitted ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. We are servants. And look at what it says. And we are writing to the saints. Now, this this is amazing to me. We know, first of all, this is a book written to believers, to the gathering of believers at a local identifiable church call in Philippi. He calls these believers saints. Now, saints is a word that means someone who is holy, someone who is righteous, someone whose God has set apart for his name and his kingdom. And what Paul tells us here is that every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. You may not feel like a saint. You might not look much like a saint. But if you had trusted Jesus Christ in the eyes of God, you are a saint. This is where the Roman Catholic Church gets it a little wrong. They see saints as someone who has died. We see saints as those who are absolutely alive. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint in Christ Jesus. What it means is that you are holy not because of the works that you've done in righteousness, but because at the moment in which you trusted Christ, God declared you holy because all the righteousness that belonged to Jesus Christ was credited to your account on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Meaning on the cross, God took all of your sin and placed it on Jesus and all of Jesus' righteousness and placed it on you. So at the moment you trusted Christ, he now sees you as he sees his only son. You are, if you are in Christ, a saint, holy and righteous before God, and God the Father sees you spotless cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is good news, amen? Amen. That deserves a little bit better amen than that, amen? Amen. It is good to know that we are saints in Christ Jesus. So he writes to the church as saints, and then it says this, he is writing to those at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now it gives us a little clue that the church has has come a long way from that little gathering in Lydia's house. They now have, 10 years later, established leadership. 
the two church offices, which are ordained in Scripture, overseers and deacons. That word overseer is one of the three words used to refer to pastors in the New Testament. Uh, This is the same word that is often translated bishop, overseer or bishop. There's also the word elder, and there's also the word for pastor or shepherd. All three of those words, interchangeable, used to describe the same office, It is the one that God has anointed, the multitude, I believe, there are many pastors within the church, those who God has called out to lead, to manage, to watch over, to teach, to give direction to the church. They don't do it because they're necessarily any more gifted, they don't do it because they're any holier, they do it because God has placed a call on their lives. I am a sinful church member just like you. It's just the fact that God has put a call on my life to step aside and be set apart for this purpose of watching over you, of guiding you, of directing you, of managing the affairs of the church is what God has called the pastors to do. And thank God in a church this size, we have many pastors called by the church. The pastors cannot do their job without the deacons. So it says the deacons, a word that simply means servants. A group of people who have been set aside for one primary purpose, to focus on caring for the needs of people. Acts 6 makes it very clear that there are needs within the church related to people that the pastors are not able to meet, and it's causing division in the church. So God creates a group of people set aside as deacons, qualified to serve as deacons, who exist to focus on serving and caring for people. That's what deacons do. So all of a sudden, you have this picture of a church that's come a long way in 10 years. They've got a gathering of more people. They have identifiable leadership. They've made progress. They have done what a church does. They gather, they put leadership in place, and they lead people to Christ. That's about as simple as it gets. But as you read throughout the book of Philippians, you find that there's more that has happened in those 10 years than just what happened in the church in Philippi. The book of Philippians, in many ways, is unlike any other letter that Paul writes. It's why so many people love it. It is a letter of deep affection. Paul has a relationship with this group of people, it seems, unlike any other relationship he has with any other church that he started. I mean, just look at verses 3 and following. We'll get into this in detail next week. But he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Listen to this verse. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He talks of them as being partakers of grace, partners in the gospel. They bring deep joy to his heart. Now, if you've read the other letters of Paul, you know not every church brings Paul that kind of joy. There are some churches that bring him a lot of other feelings. But this church consistently brings him joy. 
He views them as partners with him. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ. There is something significant and unique about the relationship he has with them. And the truth is, is that Scripture throughout the book of Acts and Philippians tells us exactly why that's the case. Now, what I want to do quickly this morning is I want to take some time to walk you through what happened in the 10 years between Acts 16 and the writing of this letter. It not only helps us to understand why the letter was written, which is going to help us interpret every passage, but you'll see at the end, knowing the story of how this church worked and the challenges that they face, you will start to realize that the challenges they face are not much different than the challenges we face. And there are some reminders that we can get here from what happened in this church that are critical for us as we seek to move forward and be the church that God has called us to be. It's what happened in those 10 years to continue to deepen the relationship between Paul and this church. Well, stay with me as I walk through this with you. Acts 16 tells us that Paul left, and he left Philippi with a little church in place, and he immediately went to Thessalonica. It was in Thessalonica where it was a similar story. He preached the gospel, people got saved, and there was persecution. The religious leaders were furious at what Paul had done. They didn't like the message he preached. They didn't like the division that it caused when people were brought out of the darkness into the light. And so Paul was asked to very quickly leave the city, but not before people had been saved. But while Paul was in Thessalonica, he received a gift from the church in Philippi. How do we know that? Well, it tells us in Philippians 4, 15, and 16. It says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. So think about it. Paul starts a church, he leaves, he goes to Thessalonica for about two weeks, and in that two-week period, someone came from the church in Philippi and brought him financial help so he continue his ministry. It says Paul then leaves Thessalonica and he goes to Corinth, where he stays for about 18 months. Incredible things happen in the church in Corinth, and we know a lot about those things. But while he was there, he received another financial gift from the church in Philippi. Paul wasn't asking for this. The church in Philippi just wanted to be a part of what God was doing. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, Paul says to the Corinthians, when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. Paul's saying, I didn't ask you for money. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So how did Paul have money to minister? Well, the reason is, is because the church in Philippi, It was the church in Philippi that allowed the church in Thessalonica to exist. It was the church in Philippi that allowed the church in Corinth to exist. Every single place Paul was going, he was receiving friends from Philippi who were bringing him financial gifts. And a relationship is beginning to build. Now, it was a little while after that, and then Paul goes on his third missionary journey. And the purpose of this journey was a bit different. There was believers in Jerusalem who were suffering financially. And so it was asked that Paul would go back to the Gentile churches and take up an offering from the Gentile churches to support the church in Jerusalem. So Paul went back to all of the churches he started and said, listen, you need to help your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so on this journey, Paul went to Philippi. But listen, he didn't ask him for money. 
That was the whole point of the trip is to ask people for money, but he refused to ask the church in Philippi for money for two reasons. Number one, they had already done so much, and number two, they were broke. And Paul thought, listen, you don't have anything, and so I'm not going to ask you, and plus, no one's done more for me than you have done. But even though Paul didn't ask, they gave. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 8 says. Paul says to the church at Corinth, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, and listen, their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You don't see those things together very often, do you? Extreme poverty and wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify beyond their means of their own accord. Listen to this phrase. How much does this happen in the church? Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging to give of the offering. How many times in the church have you heard someone beg to give of the offering? Pastor, could we just pass the offering plate twice? I just, I love giving, I'd like to double up this week. And if you could just pass it twice, that would be great. I've received a lot of requests about worship service. I've never received a request to pass the offering more than once. I received some requests to not pass it at all, but never twice. So Paul went to Philippi and they begged. They said, Paul, we know what you're doing. You're collecting an offering. And we know you don't want to ask us because you don't have anything. But in our poverty... We want to give because we believe in you, we believe in your work, and we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you start to get a picture of the kind of church this was in Philippi? They loved the gospel. They loved the apostle Paul, and every single place Paul went, they supported him. Now, right after Paul had left Corinth, he went to Rome. It was there that he was put in prison. And you might remember he appealed to Caesar, and so he was taken in a boat and taken to Rome where he was under house arrest. Now, when he was under house arrest, it meant that he wasn't able to leave, but people could come visit him. The church at Philippi heard that he was in house arrest. Once again, they wanted to send a gift. But not only did they send a gift, they sent one of their beloved church members, Epaphroditus, to travel from Philippi all the way to Rome. Now, on the way there, Epaphroditus almost died. He got very sick. They didn't think he was going to make it. We'll see that in chapter 2. But Paul tells us a little bit about this moment. It says again in Philippians 4, it says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for me in my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Every single place Paul went, somebody from Philippi showed up with some encouragement and a financial gift to make his ministry It's the exact reason why in Philippians 1, 2, 3, and 4, you see Paul have such a deep affection for this group. He refers to them in a way he doesn't refer to anyone else, that you have partnered with me 
like no one else has from the beginning of my ministry until now. But here's what happens. Epaphroditus shows up and brings a gift to Paul. But he also brings news of how the church in Philippi is doing. Now remember how much he loves this church. Remember how closely connected they are. Imagine how grieved he would be to find out that the church in Philippi is not as strong as he thought it was. Ten years later, after miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, after seeing miraculously this church planted, Paul gets word from Epaphroditus that the church is struggling. And there's two primary struggles. First of all, there's the presence of incredible persecution. We know that from Philippians 2.25. He says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, messenger in my need. Right before that, in Philippians 1, he says, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ to not only believe, but to suffer for his sake. You are engaged in the same conflict that I endured when I was with you. Now remember what happened to Paul? He preached the gospel. He got dragged down to the street. His clothes were torn off. He got beaten, publicly shamed, and thrown into prison. Now he comes back in Philippians 1 and he says, I know that the exact same thing is happening to you. The same suffering that happened to me is the same suffering that is happening to you. There is incredible external pressure on the church. Now we really can't identify with it. I mean, we really have no idea what this was like to know that the moment that you publicly profess faith it means it could cost you your life. Do you know that Philippi was a Roman colony and they had to pledge allegiance to the emperor? And there were two titles that were used to refer to the emperor and every time people were gathered and they honored the emperor Nero, they had to declare that Nero was both curios and soter, savior and lord. You're required to declare that Nero is Savior and Lord, which, by the way, makes Philippians 2 so significant when Paul says, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul was saying something incredible. He was saying there is one Lord and his name is not Nero. His name is Jesus Christ. And right now they are bowing their knee to Nero. But there will be a day in which everyone bows their knee to Jesus Christ. It will be clear that there is one Lord and his name is Jesus. But the pressure on these believers. This is why baptism was so significant. When you were baptized, you were going public with your faith. And to go public with your faith was to let everyone know that you were identifying yourself with the Christians and declaring Jesus is Lord. We make that declaration when we do baptism. What is your declaration? Jesus is Lord. That's what baptism is, that public declaration. Incredible persecution. But maybe even worse than that was that Epaphroditus came and told Paul, Paul, not only is there a lot of persecution, but there's just a lot of division in the church. There's quarrels, there's grumbling, there's complaining, there's pride, there's selfish ambition. There's all kinds of people that are looking out for their own interest and not for the interest of Christ. Paul, things aren't going well. The church is not united. People are fighting. People are grumbling. People are complaining towards one another. And Paul had no idea this was happening. 
And all of a sudden, Paul gets a message from this church that he loves that they're facing all kinds of external pressure. They're facing all kind of internal division. And Paul all of a sudden realizes that there are two things that can take down a church quicker than anything else, and that's outside pressure and internal division. And so Paul and Timothy, having gotten this news, sit down and write a letter specifically to confront these two things, to confront them in their division and encourage them in their faithfulness. There's really a couple of reasons Paul writes this letter. He sends Epaphroditus back to deliver this letter. And by the way, we'll see this in chapter two. One of the things they requested when Epaphroditus came is Timothy. They said, could you sing Timothy back to us? We need, we need professional help. <laughs> we need an outside consultant to come and to help deal with this division. They knew Paul couldn't come. He's in house arrest. But they begged for Timothy. The problem is Paul needed Timothy. So Paul says, I can't send Timothy, but I'll send Epaphroditus. He says this in chapter two. Epaphroditus comes back, having received from Paul this letter and delivers this letter that we have, coming from Paul in a prison for a couple of main reasons. Paul writes, first of all, because he just wants to thank them. He's really grateful. That's why he says, there is no one that has stood by me except for you, no one. I love how touching that verse is. Paul says, there is no one who has stood with me like you have stood with me, no one. Paul is really grateful for them. As a matter of fact, most scholars will say that if you look just at the way in which this letter was written, it's penned like an ancient friendship letter. You know, if you open up a Word document, you can find templates for different letters. You can have one for a resume or one for a thank you note or whatever it might be. There were, in Greek literature, different templates for letters. And everyone says, if you look at the template of friendship, you're just writing a letter to someone you love. This is exactly the format that it would take. The words that are used are similar to that. Paul is simply saying, I love you. I'm grateful for you. I could not have done what I did without you, so thank you. But you'll notice in the midst of all the affection, there's deep concern. So Paul writes to plead with them. He's pleading with them to remain faithful. He's pleading with them to stand for the cause of the gospel. He's pleading with them to be united. He says in chapter two, stop grumbling, stop whining, stop complaining. There are two places in which this command is needed the most. In your home when you have children and in the church. No whining, no grumbling, no complaining. There should be a, home, a sign in every home that says no more whining. And there should also be a sign probably right here that says no more whining. <laughs> it's not exactly the message we want to give to everyone. But isn't it true? It's natural in our own flesh. The whining and complaining starts to exist. And Paul is saying to them, listen, I'm begging of you. Stop the grumbling. Stop the whining. Stop the grumbling. He's begging them to stay united for the cause of the gospel. It's exactly what causes him to say in Philippians 1, 27. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says in chapter two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same love, in full accord of one mind. One of the primary messages, I would say the primary message of Philippians is church, stay together. Stay united. So Paul is writing them, begging them 
to stay united. Paul knows that the unity of the church is essential to the effectiveness of the church. And by the way, Paul goes right at them. He not only very clearly says that there's grumbling and complaining and whining, but look real carefully at chapter 4, verse 2. Now just imagine this letter is received by the church at Philippi. It's read out loud, and you get to chapter 2, and everybody's amening. That's right, we got to stop complaining and whining. And all of a sudden, Paul calls out two women by name. I love this. I think this is a model for pastoral ministry here. Just call them out. I entreat Yodia. I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. You know what he's saying? I'm begging these two ladies because Epaphroditus just came and told him there's a couple of women in the church that can't get along. So Paul, not subtly, just calls them out by name and tells them, I beg you to get along. You know, I've said many times that one of the reasons there's no fear of God left is because there's no discipline left in the church. That when the church doesn't deal with sin, when the church just lets everything go, well, no one fears God anymore. I can promise you there's a little bit of fear in the church in Philippi about getting along when you know that Paul might call you out by name. I don't think I would ever do this. I don't think I would ever do this. I'm not saying right now I would never do this. But Paul's just saying, ladies, listen. There's work to be done. And as long as you're spending your time complaining and grumbling and not get along, we can't do the work that God has called us to do. So I'm begging you to get along. He's begging the church to be unified. He's begging the church to be faithful to stand firm in the midst of suffering, to work out their salvation, in the midst of suffering, to be together in the midst of the suffering and the conflict, to make sure that nothing distracts them from their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ and working together with the church for the cause of the gospel. See, one of the reminders I love about this and the reason I think the story is so important, this letter reminds us that past faithfulness does not guarantee future fruitfulness. Past faithfulness does not guarantee future fruitfulness. It is possible for this church to be Paul's biggest supporter, to stand behind him more than anybody else has, and from this point on to do nothing else for the kingdom because they simply can't get along. It is possible. Listen, Christ is going to build his church. He doesn't mean he's going to build it through us. He might just move right from here to another congregation to build his church. He wants to build it through us, but it depends upon our faithfulness. Paul says, I love you. I'm so thankful for you, but I'm pleading with you to stay together and to stay faithful. I mean, knowing all that, does this sound like a letter that the church needs? Stay faithful, stay united, and stay on mission. Let me tell you, as we close, the two reminders that I think are most significant for us in our personal journey. And I wanna, I wanna ask you to write these two down. This story gives us two critical reminders as we seek to journey together individually and corporately in our walk with Jesus Christ. The first reminder is this. The church will always be under attack. Write that down. The church will always be under attack. We talked about Matthew 16, 18 last week. 
where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you realize the presence of a promise points us to the reality of a potential problem? Well, so that's right. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against us. And as you think for a minute, you realize the reason he says that is because the gates of hell are going to try to prevail against us. And we're going to need that promise when it literally seems like all hell is broken loose on our life and our family and on our church. We're going to need to be reminded that Jesus said that the enemy will not win. But my biggest concern for the modern church is not that we're convinced the enemy won't win. We've stopped realizing that the enemy is going to try to win. That we are in a war. When James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, that reminds us that he's coming after you. When Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, what it means is that there are demonic heavenly forces coming after you and your family and the church of Jesus Christ. And he does not play fair. He will do anything he can to get you to run and to hide and not to confess your sin and not to get right and not to get humble and not to be pure because if he takes down you, he can take down your family and if he takes down your family, he's gonna take down the church. Listen, we are always under attack. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says that we should not be ignorant of his schemes. We should be aware of the way in which the enemy works. And let me tell you, 2,000 years later, the enemy is not working much different than he worked in Philippi. He is using external pressure and internal conflict to bring the church down. It's not just persecution that brings external pressure. It's busyness. It's activities. It's laziness. It's all of the things that you feel in your heart that are subtly pulling you away to faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Church, do you feel it? Do you feel the constant pull in your own heart away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I feel it constantly. That's why Hebrews 2 says, be careful lest you drift away because unless you're paying attention, you will naturally move further away from Christ, not closer to him, which demands vigilance on our part to stay as close to him as we can. The enemy is going to use all kinds of activities and busyness and pressure to keep you away from the church of Jesus Christ. We've got to watch his schemes to pull us away. But listen, the bottom line is sometimes the devil knows that he doesn't need to put a lot of external pressure because we can mess things up ourselves without him. I mean, we, we, have a, we have a very keen ability, apart from all of the external opposition, just to take this thing down by our own grumbling and complaining. Let me just tell you something. Listen, listen very carefully. Paul goes after false teachers. It's very clear. Not over secondary issues of doctrine. He goes after false teachers who are enemies of the cross of Christ and are preaching a false gospel. And so it is that we as a church and I as your pastor will go after those who preach a false gospel. We have to stand. We don't divide on secondary issues, but we will divide 
on the gospel, we will stand against that. And so Paul is, is faithful to call out false teachers. But Paul is also faithful to call out people in the church that are not getting along over secondary issues. Listen very carefully. That kind of grumbling and that kind of complaining and that kind of whining and that kind of division is demonic. It is from the pit of hell. It is the enemy doing anything he can do to get us to do anything but fight together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, you do not want to be a part of it. Because your name might not get called out from the pulpit, but you will pay. There will be judgment for those who side with the enemy and cause unnecessary division on things that don't matter. Paul says, church, we are under attack and one of the greatest ways that we will lose is when we fail to deal with things biblically and correctly and graciously and kindly and with love there will be issues i will do things that make you upset you will do things that make me upset and you know what we're going to realize that's par for the course and we're going to deal with it. You're going to talk to me. I'm going to talk to you. I'm not going to talk to somebody else before I talk to you. You're not going to talk to somebody else before you talk to me. We're not going to create little groups here and there that are trying to fight for different things. No, we are a church working together aware that the enemy can bring us down if we are not vigilant in this one area. So let's agree, amen? Amen. The second reminder is, is not only that the church will always be under attack, but the church must always remain together for the gospel. This is the last thing I want to say to you this morning. The church must remain together for the gospel. Key verse in the book of Philippians, I'm going to say it every week, is in Philippians 1, 27, when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Every individual member live a life worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear, listen, here it is, that you're standing firm. You're not distracted by the persecution. You're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving, which means we're all working. We're side by side, and here's what we're working for, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel. The message that it is possible for anyone to come into a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ Unbelievers that are here today, it is possible for you right now to be declared holy and righteous before God, to know without question that someday when you stand before him, you will enter into his presence and spend eternity with him if you'll receive Jesus Christ. We are together for that. We're not together for anything else. We're together for that. We are united because God has called the church to advance the message of the gospel. And you see the reason the enemy wants to undermine us is to get us distracted so that we will do anything but that. There are so many churches that are together for Bible studies and together for programs and together for activities, but if you really look at it, they're not together for the gospel. We exist to be united for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful opportunity. We must remain together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Philippians teaches us how to do. It says this, if you have a church, want to get along, if you want to be together for the gospel, if you want to be the kind of church that God blesses, 
Paul says, I'm going to instruct you how to do that. What he's going to say is, if you want to do that, first of all, you all have to be submissive to the same Lord, and you all have to be focused on the same mission. You know how this works? Listen, it works this way. It works when I'm submissive to Jesus Christ and you're submissive to Jesus Christ. And you're submissive to Christ and you're submissive to Christ and you're submissive. You simply are dying to selfish ambition and vain conceit and you say, Christ, all I want is you and you glorified through me. You're seeking the Lord. You're working out your salvation. And each one of us individually decide all we want is to see this church effective in reaching people for Jesus Christ. To seeing the gospel further in the lives of individuals. Listen, the way in which God uses a church is by working the lives of individual believers. So let me just say by way of invitation this morning. It is so easy for us to sit here and say, well, I want the church to do this. I want the church to do that. And the church is made up of individual peoples who are doing that. God is on the move. God is working. God is building his church. And the question is, are you going to be a part? Are you submissive to Christ? Are you seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness? Have you been led astray by different quarrels and divisions? Are you a part of the solution? Are you a part of the problem? God is calling you individually to examine your life. Are you walking with Jesus in such a way that God can use you to help build his church? I pray by God's grace it would be true of every one of us. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.